Gracious Father, in these moments that we have gathered together as a community of faith, we ask that you in your grace and in your mercy would speak to us and remind us of the the supreme authority and power and authority of your word that you have given to us and what a treasure it is to hold in our hands and to hear and to meditate on and and to, to have it so that we can walk through this journey of life knowing that there is a, a solid, stable, sound, unwavering voice that's always true. Father, I pray that you would enlighten minds and hearts this morning in a way that only you can, even for those of us who believe uh, we cannot hear apart from your sustaining uh, graciousness to us so that we can really understand in a way that impacts and um, carries our hearts by faith. I pray that you would help me to teach in a way that is both wise and also true and um, that your people would be um, reaffirmed and confirmed in the roots and foundation of their faith this morning um, so that we might stand in the day of trial, we might stand in the day of of opposing pressures, and that we would not break. So Lord, we, uh, we come before you, again, asking for your power and grace to accompany this moment that we have in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, we are do, doing a, a post-Easter three-part series called Why, and it's a bit of an, uh, an apologetic um, series. Not apologetic in the sense that we're saying I'm sorry, but in the traditional sense of the word, it's giving a defense or a reasoned defense of, of why we believe what we believe. And um, in part, it's to reaffirm the faith of those of you who are here to know that your faith is reasonable and rational. It's not just a, a, a blind um, act of faith. And also to just, um, for those who might have come after Easter, to just hear the questions or hear the answer as to why we believe what we believe. That, of course, is, a, is another reason. Um, last week, we looked at part one, which was why believe in God, the God portrayed in the Bible. This morning, we, we look at a, a second question that's equally important, and that is why believe in the scriptures or why believe in the, in the Bible? Why, why do we believe that this has supreme authority? Um, and it has had supreme authority in the life of God's people since the days of Israel, um, thousands of years ago when Moses first writ, wrote the first five books called the Law of Moses or the Pentateuch or the Torah. They believed them to be the infallible, supreme, authoritative word directly from God. And as such, um, they, they held it to be the highest authority. So the question is, why do we in the 21st century, why should we believe that? Uh, and that, of course, is a very important, important crucial, pivotal question um, because the church, it rises and it falls based upon its belief in this book, um, in what we believe is the um, spoken or written word, word of God. The question is, is why? Why should we listen to it? Why should we um, submit to it? Why should we believe what it says um, why should we believe what it reveals about God, ourselves, the world around us? That's, that's, that's the question that I'd like us to look at. Again, very, very important. In the life of the church, the, the Bible has served as the foundation stone from which we understood all other realities. It is the, the kind of the foundation of knowledge for the Christian church. It has been and served that for, for, um, for thousands of years. And it's a, it's a really important question for our time um, because as you may or may not know, a culture and society is um, departing from and in some ways becoming at, an, uh, 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 
antithetical and uh, even hostile to biblical teaching. And as culture and society move this way and the biblical teaching is this way, there's going to be more and more pressure put upon the church to conform or um, there's going to be more and more attacks upon the foundation of our, um, our faith, which is the truth of God in Scripture. So it's a, it's a very, very important question for, for our time and for our generation and for our culture. Like I said, it's, there used to be a time when, when culture and biblical knowledge were more or less the same, but we are in a time where they are divergent, and the question is, what are we going to believe? That's like the question. So again, back to the question, why believe in the Bible? Now, um, before we get to the answer, let me just say I think we can all agree that, um, generally speaking, we typically trust things in authority um, if they have certain qualities. That is, if they're trustworthy, if those things are true, and if it's credible. If, if, if what we hold in our hands is not trustworthy, if it's not true, if it doesn't conform to reality or history, that is, if it's not credible, then we shouldn't believe it. It should have those qualities. And you know, just based upon common experience, we know the difference between something that's not credible and something that's credible. I remember walking through the grocery line as a, as a young boy with my mom and looking up on the magazine rack on my left, and there, were these, um, there was these articles in newspaper print with outlandish stories. You know, the Enquirer, National Enquirer, and then there's a World Weekly News and there's these amazing headlines as a little kid. I didn't know the difference between a newspaper and a tabloid. And so I look at some of these outrageous you know, headlines and as a kid thinking, holy smokes, like a dolphin grows human arms or a chimp's head put on a human body. And I remember asking my mom, is that really true? And my mom, you know, my paraphrase, was like, that's just a bunch of rubbish. You can't read what you, uh, trust what you read in those things. And since then, like, we know the difference, Right? Uh, you know the difference? Yeah, I'm not going to trust what I read. Now, when it comes to the Wall Street Journal, has a reputation for journalistic integrity and, and trying to remain true to the facts. And whatever you believe about that source of news, the fact of the matter is most people know the difference between one is in, not credible and one that's credible. And we're willing to listen and accept at some level on faith that they're reporting things correctly. Because it has a certain amount of credibility to it and truth or trustworthiness. Question is, is this true? Is it trustworthy and is it credible? Now, I want to structure what I'm about to say in in three parts. Um, And actually, let me just back up and say, to be true to my theology and true to the scripture, at the end of the day, um, we need help to accept this as supremely authoritative. Um, our hearts are a little bit too stubborn, a little bit too proud and prideful um, to, to really get it. Uh, I say that for myself, and uh, that's what the Bible teaches. We need, even, even now, I, I can read this, and, and, and I still need God's help to have, it, have my heart get it. That, that is, there is this supernatural help and assistance that we need in, 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 in getting this. So God does need to help us in this room, if you will, to believe this is his word. But that doesn't mean that there are not reasons or there's not um, support for why we believe in this book. 
So now back to where we're headed. Let me lay out um, a statement of truth, a proposition or a, or a, um, a thesis, a statement, and then I'm going to support it along two lines of, of reason, okay? So thesis, this is structure, two lines of reason. One is internal, that is reasons that come from within the Bible itself, and then there are the external reasons, some of that historical stuff that uh, David talked about. Okay, thesis, two parts, internal, external. Thesis statement. Um, Main truth. The reason that we hold this book to be supremely authoritative over every creed and constitution and truth claim of any religious figure or organization is because ultimately we believe this book comes from God himself. It comes from the creator. It is is his message to us. And if that statement is true, then it is the highest, most true, most infallible voice that we're supposed to listen to. People may misinterpret this. They may um, use or misinterpret it to advance a personal and private and twisted agenda, but that's not a problem with the book. It's the problem with the person interpreting it. And that doesn't, by the way, mean that there aren't true and good interpretations of it. So, thesis. Best summary I know is uh, what Mike read just a few moments ago. Um, This is the Apostle Paul speaking of of Scripture, and that first part in particular is the most important, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. When the New Testament uses the word Scripture or graphe, every time it is referring to the collection of books in the Old Testament. The sacred writings. So that's what he's referring to. All scripture. New Testament hadn't been written. At least most of it hadn't been written when he wrote this. So he's talking about the Old Testament. But even within Paul's own generation, when he was writing, they were already referring to one another's writings as graphe or scripture. The point being the entirety of scripture. Now, which ones are in and which ones are out is a completely different question that we don't have time for. But... The church has, uh, has accepted, and the Jewish people before them have accepted the Old Testament and New Testament. The entirety, all Scripture is, and the next part is all important, is breathed out by God. It, it, that is his breathed out word. It comes from him. He's the originator of it. He's the grand author of it. Now, it's true there are human authors that authored this book. But the Bible insists that God's spirit moved in and through these Writers to write his words so that what we have is actually the voice of God. All right? It's breathed out. It's his word to us. It's, it's the grand word of the creator speaking to us. And, and, and it is a gift. It is a blessing to actually be able to hold it in our hands. Okay? That's the thesis. That's the main point. The reason it's supreme is because it comes from him. Question is, why, why should we believe that? Okay, reasons. Internal, external. Internal reasons for believing. One, and this is just kind of, these are compelling to me. Maybe you'll find them compelling. But one of them is that the Bible tells one consistent story from creation to recreation. That is from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It consists of one story centered on one main person or subject. Jesus, and we talked about this, uh, referred to it at Easter, Jesus teaching his disciples said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that the, their entirety, the things concerning himself. They say, saying, I'm, like I'm the, 
The whole thing is a story about me and what I came to do to reverse the effects of the fall. So it, it centers on him as the subject. Our salvation is its main object, and the glory of God is its overarching purpose. You know, it, 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 it begins in a garden in Genesis 2, and it ends in a garden in Genesis 22. In other words, we end where we begin, that through the cross and the resurrection, God, in a work of grace and love, brings us back to the perfection we had at the beginning, as it tells one singular overarching story that's consistent throughout. Um, even its, its central ethics and requirements are the same all the way throughout. What is the central core ethic of the Bible? But to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that is all the way through. That's the core, is to love God, be loved by God, and love each other. That is the core element from Genesis to Revelation, and the central requirement, to trust in him. To have the humility to trust in him, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Paul. Um, The just shall live by faith or trust alone. You might say, okay, one consistent story starts in a garden, ends in a garden. Jesus is the central subject. Salvation is the, uh, the objective. Why, does that, why is that a reason? Well, let's just stop and think about this just, just for a second, okay? Best estimates are that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible sometime in the 14th century B.C., plus or minus some years. Now, the history he records goes back a lot farther, but... He probably wrote the first five books, the earliest books of the Bible, in the 14th century B.C. And then all of the other um, subsequent writers, the um, first and second kings and the prophets, wrote after that. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, was written probably in the 90s A.D. All right, now just follow me on this. I just want to think, all right, process this. So, 1400 B.C. to the first century B.C. That's 15 centuries over which this book was written. 15 centuries, people in different times over those 15 centuries going through um, cultural pressures, uh, political upheavals, exile, um, destruction, all of these things happening during those 15 centuries, and yet in those 15 centuries, they tell the same story. They contribute to the unfolding singular story. Now, that, that's, that's pretty amazing, Right? They tell the same story written over, over, over a vast period of time. But then you add to that the fact that there were more or less 40 authors. We don't know exactly how many authors there were that composed the, the scripture. 40 authors, different people, writing over the course of 15 centuries to tell a singular story. And then you add to that the fact that they lived in different places. Part of the Bible was probably written in Africa. That is Moses and, and maybe Jeremiah. Parts of the Bible, maybe the bulk of the Bible, was written in Asia. That is, in the Middle East, that's part of Asia. And then some of it was written in Europe. That is, the Apostle John wrote Revelation, and Paul wrote many of his epistles from Rome and Patmos. That is from Asia. Fifteen centuries, 40 authors, three different continents, telling the same story. That, to me, is one of the most self-authenticating reasons to believe it. You're, I read it even to this day, and I'm like, it really does. I, the, 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 the apostle John at the end of the Bible is telling us, he's completing the story that Moses began in the beginning. How, did this, how, can, how can that happen? Three continents, 40 plus or minus a few authors over 15th century. Well, 
just maybe it suggests that there's a big author behind them all, right? There's actually somebody moving this story. And I think that's where the evidence, the, the, if you will, the rational reason uh, one of them comes from. I, mean, I, I my, my wife Deanna and I sat down with my, my great aunt and great uncle. Um, she was my girlfriend at the time. They were in their 90s. They lived in Pasadena. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a comedy of errors to watch them tell a story. I said, my, Uncle Dan, my mom says I'm named after him, and my dad says, no, I'm named after the guy in the Bible. And I don't know, they kind of argue over that, uh, where my name comes from. But anyway, I, we're in his living room, and he's at the table talking to her, and he's telling a story, you know, in his 90s. You remember that time back in the Great Depression when we were making uh, biscuits with jam and butter because that's all we had? I think it was 1931, and she would butt in. She'd go, dear, it wasn't 1931, it was 1930. And it wasn't Los Angeles, it was Pasadena. And you could tell, it's like he'd had a whole, they had been married 70 years, and he had dealt with 70 years of her butting into his story, because he was always getting the, the details wrong, and he'd roll his eyes, and then he'd continue on in his story. Here's two people living in the same generation, same time frame, can't get the story right. And yet we have a story written over 15 centuries by 40 plus, minus different authors in three different continents telling us the amazing story of how God rescued us through Jesus Christ to bring us back to the creation. I don't know, that's compelling to me. It's a reason to believe. It may not be ironclad or bulletproof, but you read it and you realize, man, this is, this is evidence of a, of a bigger author here. That's one reason. Another reason from inside the Bible. As the Bible goes against the grain of human convention. I could have put this in different ways, but, but the Bible has a way of saying things and doing things that is so unnatural to our humanity or, or the way in which the world, the fallen world, works. It's, it's like God works in inverted ways, and, and, and as such, the story is like unique. It's, it's, it's unique to, I think, the way God does things. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, is, is that we as humans living in, a, uh, again, a fallen, broken world, we tend to gravitate towards and celebrate and exult in and um, celebrate power and wealth and influence and politics and prowess and, and um, people who make a name for themselves. We, 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 you know, Peyton Manning, Marshawn Lynch, just... Amazing individuals, amazing longevity, amazing skills, amazing agility. Um, or a Chris Kyle or an Adam Brown are warriors, you know. That is, that's, that's, that, those, those kinds of personalities are the ones that we look to to make the world go round. That's, that's just kind of the, the fabric of our world. Now, the way God tells his story and the way he accomplishes his story is like, it turns that all upside down. I can almost picture God picking the guys that he's going to have work out his story. A group of big, strong, strapping men. Powerful. Swords. Brawny. Big, deep voices. And God's in a room going, okay, you, way too big muscles, I don't want you. You, way too smart. Scrawny guy in the back. Average intelligence isn't popular or influential. You, you're the one. Like, and that's the way that God works through Scripture. And it's so 
unhuman. Joseph, one of the youngest of 12 brothers, right? Sold into slavery. God's like, this guy who's a slave in a dungeon, he's going to win. I'm going to raise to the second imposition under Pharaoh. And through him, I'm going to save my own people from starvation. Moses, we're like, Moses, right? Because we picture Charlton Heston. <laughs> they need to come out with a new version, right? Charlton Heston, NRA, whew, ready. <laughs> Moses was a shepherd, a shepherd in Midian. God sends him down to Egypt. And the empire of Egypt collapsed. The armies are destroyed and he's armed with nothing but a staff. What? Think about that. People of Israel come into the promised land. There are enemies, large and in charge. God calls Gideon and says, hey, you need to deliver my people from the enemy. Gideon has 32,000 men in his army. God's like, whoa, way too many. Thin them out. He ends up going with 200. Like, that's completely unconventional. Like, who does that? God does. You know why? Because at the end of the day, he doesn't want humans to say, listen, we did this. He's like, no, I'm going to show you that with 200 people, I can bring down the world. He, that is, he uses, uses the weak. You know, Samson, mighty Samson, I'm just speculating here, but I'm guessing he was really small. I'm guessing he was... He looked like a pansy. That's what we call him. He's pansy. Nobody look at him and go, wow, that guy. I mean, because God doesn't seem to work that way, right? He's probably a weakling, but somehow able to push buildings down and take on thousands. That's, that's the way he, he, he tends to work. Who did he pick to take on Goliath with a little youth with a stone? We're supposed to almost laugh at that, but that's exactly what the Lord does. That's how, that's how he accomplishes his story. Big, strong guy, smart guy, you guys, sorry. It doesn't mean God doesn't use those things. It just means that the story turns on, on weakness. God does the exact opposite of what we'd expect. And when it comes to the big turning point, the great victory moment in, in, in history of the Bible, and I'd say human history, who does he choose? A man who is despised and rejected of men. Lowly, born into poverty. Um, he has no beauty of his own that we should esteem him. Hanging on a cross in utter weakness, and God's like, saves the world through that. Like, you, you serious that a human would tell that story? It's so counter-conventional. It's like, this, this, is, this is really creative authorship. I think beyond humanity. It's, this, is, this has the fingerprints of, of a divine story that upsets the human stories. <laughs> I, I, I even think about, you know, the way it paints all of these Moses and David with these brushes that are, that are all these men were just fallen, broken people like you and I. And it, the Bible doesn't, like, do what we do, which is we strip our national heroes of all their warts and say, wow, George Washington was an amazing guy. He didn't do anything wrong. It's like, Really? That's how we paint our heroes, and the Bible's like, no, I'm not painting heroes that way. 
Moses got angry and struck the rock a second time and disobeyed the Lord, and as a result was precluded from coming into the promised land. David blew it big time with Bathsheba. You want to, there's not a single hero in the, in, the, in the story that's not broken except for one. And that's, of course, Christ. I Think about even the, like the, the, the message of Scripture itself. Most of the books that people gravitate towards in terms of reading are usually the, some brand or echo of self-help, that it is appeals to our sense of empowerment, that if you put these things into place, you'll be a little bit more successful. If you have these habits, you're going to go farther in life. And there's a place for those, right, in its proper order. The Bible comes along and says the exact opposite. It does not appeal in any way, shape, or form to a sense of self-empowerment, like you can do it. Oh, it comes along and says, you can't do it. That's, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. There's no, no sense of self-help or self-empowerment in that. He says, listen, apart from me, you can do zilch. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Really? That's what it says. That's the message. Because only God can do what you can't do for yourself. So instead of trusting in yourself, trust in him that he did it. And you know what? Then what you do comes from a different source, a different fountain. It comes from realizing that I can do all things through Christ, who's my strength. This is totally different. That's, but do you see how contrary? That uniqueness to me is another reason to believe this is another voice speaking. It's not a human one, but the voice of God in, in Scripture. And, and, and oh, I, Here's a citation for this, just to give this a biblical verse. This is Apostle Paul. He talks about how God works so differently than us when he said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the key, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That God's the hero of the story, not us. And so he chooses weak and lowly things that we don't expect so he can say, look, there's no explanation for how that happened except God did it. And then third is that the Bible is full of prophecies fulfilled. You have all these prophetic books that talk about the rising and destruction of empires, even spelling out the names of emperors like Cyrus before he's even born. And lo and behold, as history unfolds, there pops Cyrus. Down goes Egypt. Up goes Assyria. Down goes Babylon. Up comes Greece. Down goes Rome. Down goes Jerusalem. It's like, now how is it that the scripture can be filled with such accurate prediction and fulfillment? Now let me pause and say the objection I can, I can hear. Well, wait a second, Dan. Maybe the Bible's written after the fact and it was pretending to be prophetic. So in, in actuality, what we're having is it's historical pretend prophecy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I could write something saying that the, you know, trade towers would come down in 9-11 and then pretend like I wrote it in 1990s. And then, lo and behold, Dan was a prophet, but he wrote after the fact. That's what I'm saying. Somebody could say that. And sure, sure, I suppose you could make that argument. A little bit harder when it comes to different texts that we've uncovered that are older than the fulfillment, like 
Isaiah scroll. By, the now, by, by now, most of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most amazing uh, discoveries uh, in the last century. And one of the things they uncovered is a complete um, Isaiah scroll, the prophet Isaiah, right? Believed to be at least 100, if not older, B.C., and in Isaiah chapter 7, this is a text dig, dug out of the dirt on papyri. says, and a virgin shall conceive, and they shall call him Emmanuel. That's textual evidence that predates what happened in probably 4 B.C. This is the historical stuff. Where a virgin named Mary found herself with child, and there was no human father. That was a little harder. It's like prophecy fulfillment. How, how is it? that the Bible can be so infallible and so accurate in what it predicts. Well, again, just maybe this is the voice of the I am who was and is and is to come, the one who's all-knowing, who's giving us a a hopeful glimpse of the future and the fact that a hero is going to come and he's going to save us. So here's just three internal reasons. I mean, it was written over 15 centuries by 40 different authors in three different continents telling one story. You know, it's so counterintuitive, counter-normal human way of doing things, so unique in its story, and of course, it has this prophecy fulfillment, which, again, those, those reasons are, are, are substantive reasons for our belief that the Bible is, 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 is his word. So now let me switch to the external. There's only two of these. Here's more of the history stuff. I just want to encourage you to... Um, just do your best to track with me on this. I'm, I got pictures, so that'll help, all right? <laughs> External evidence that the Bible is, is God's word. One, historical and archaeological discoveries corroborate the Bible rather than contradict it. That is, you know, the, the Old Testament follows um, the ancestors of Israel and Israel. And, and, it's, and it traces them through history. But it really is focused on them. It's not focused on providing us a, an anthology of world history. It's not. It's trying to trace God's salvation through the promises and through Israel and ultimately to the birth of Jesus. Right? Um, but along the way, all of this world history intersects Israel. Um, Assyrian empires coming into the Holy Land and, and the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire. And, and wherever those things intersect, we find that what the Bible says about it and what history outside the Bible says about it are this, more or less the same. That is, there's a corroboration. They're, they're telling the same history, naming the same people like Sennacherib, who was one of the kings of, of, uh, of Assyria, or Nebuchadnezzar. Both Bible and history outside the Bible say that he was a, the emperor of, of, of Babylon. Or, or, or Herod the Great, Bible and, and secular history both affirm that he was a, a, a king. They found his tomb, by the way, in 2007, just outside of the Herodium. Again, so where known history and Bible history are put side by side, you realize Bible's really telling history. Right? You can actually go, I've stood in Capernaum, I've stood in Bethsaida, I've stood in Jerusalem, I've stood in um, Megiddo, I've, I've, and many of you have too. I've stood in those places. They're, just, they're there. One can't deny that. But along the way, through the years, people have said, wait a second, though, there's, there's, there's some contradictions here. The Bible mentions this person, and, and, and he can't be found anywhere outside the Bible. So therefore, this is what skeptics would say, maybe he didn't exist. Let me give you a couple examples, and and I want you to see how this plays out. King David. Up until the 1990s, the name David 
as in the King David, could not be found in any manuscripts, ancient, nor in any archaeological discoveries. David. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that King David was like the king. Every other king was compared to him. He's the ideal king. He's the ancestor and forerunner of Jesus. So some have said, skeptics, well, someone that big in Israelite history, we should have something, so maybe he's just kind of an idealized or mythologized king. Which, by the way, is kind of, given how dark some of the pictures of who David was, I find it kind of hard to believe that he wouldn't be an idealized king. But, there are skeptics go. That part of history we can't find, so it must not exist. And then, wouldn't you know it, 1993, in a city, an ancient city called Dan, they call it Tel Dan, they found this, they discovered, the more they dig up, the more they discover, they discovered this triangular basalt rock stone with this inscription on it. And that inscription says, Beit David, which means, translated, house or dynasty of David. There it is! Pops into archaeological history, and at some point you think maybe the skeptic would say, I'm so sorry, the Bible's got to be true now, because what we didn't know now is known, and of course there's a real David. But we, that, of course, you know, I know that doesn't happen. I mean, the heart of a skeptic comes to conclusions before weighing the reasons or evidence. And it's really hard to change that. That's, that's, again, part of the stubbornness. Rather than saying, let's assume that the Bible's true. And if something hasn't been discovered, let's just assume it's true. So, another example. In the prophet Daniel, there's this king, the very last king of the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire really existed. Most of you buy that. That's in the secular histories. And there's this king, the last king of the Babylonian Empire is a man by the name of Belshazzar. Daniel names him in chapter 5, verse 1. Again, follow me on this. Well, none of the Babylonian histories have that name in it. In fact, Babylonian histories that we know that have been unearthed say that the last king on the throne before it was taken over by Persia, was a man by the name, a king by the name of Nabonidus. So historians that don't believe the Bible, skeptics would say, the Bible's wrong, Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 is wrong. The last king to sit on the throne was Nabonidus, and Daniel tells us it's Belshazzar. So which, which books are the fault, which, which one gets the fall? What's the Bible, right? Bible's wrong. Late 19th century, Archaeologists are digging under one of those ziggurats in, in, in Bab- ancient Babylon, the ruins. And they find these cylindrical, um, man-made, um, well, cylinders. And once you know it, there's writings. You can actually see the writings. Most of us can't read that, but um, ancient linguists can. Discovered by J.G. Taylor, an archaeologist, and the inscription from Nabonidus, who is, they believed was the final king, saying, um, talking about, and for the first time mentioning, Belshazzar, his eldest son. And what they discovered is Nabonidus decided he was going to exile himself and left the Babylonian Empire in the hands of his son, Belshazzar. I'm sorry, but secular history, you were wrong. Or, you hadn't unearthed it yet. 
Once again, you'd expect the skeptics to get down on their hands and knees and say, you know, the Bible was right. No, it's just, that's not how it works, right? It is true. The Bible was true even when we didn't know or have the evidence for it. Or here's one final one. Um, All four Gospels mention Pontius Pilate, the guy who presided over Jesus' uh, crucifixion. We just went through Good Friday and Easter. You know who that is. Pontius Pilate. Um, Prior to the 1960s, they they hadn't found anything with his name on it. There was nothing that, that, that recorded that Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea. And you'd figure... Someone who's a governor probably is somewhere in the chronicles of, of Rome, ancient Rome, but he wasn't there. So again, the skeptics would say, well, Gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John either made him up or were historically inaccurate. 1961. Um, archaeologists are digging in the amphitheater of Caesarea, and some of you have been there. And lo and behold, they find this limestone block with an inscription on it. An inscription and a block that comes from the first century AD. And like, wouldn't you know it, there's the name Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. You can see it in the Israeli Museum. It's kind of like someone who's dude knows this is true. And I'm just, a Christian, you don't have to fear what anybody digs up. Because the more they dig up, the more you're going to find that what you actually have in your hand is true. And it's credible. How much do you have to dig up before you realize, wow, David, Belshazzar, Pontius Pilate, right there. It's, it's, it's credible. And listen, if it was true about those historical things... Might it also not be true then that what it says that Jesus rose on the third day, that he actually historically and physically actually rose from the dead because the Bible's credible? At least if you're, if, it's, if you're willing to accept the natural history, what about the supernatural history that it records? There's no reason not to. Uh, some of you know the name James Montgomery Boyce. He was a preacher in the last century, uh, died, I think, in the 90s. But he used this illustration, and, and it, it stayed with me. If the top side is the history of the Bible, that is all the history contained in the Bible. And if the bottom side, the green part, is what we know about history, and the tan part is what hasn't been unearthed yet, um, what has happened is the more that is discovered and the more that's known the more the arrow moves in the direction of corroboration. In other words, the more we discover, the more we realize that what the Bible says is in fact historically true and credible. It doesn't go the other way. You see, the arrow is not going the other way. The arrow is moving in the direction of this is credible historical fact. It's a good way of realizing that what you hold in your hand is a credible source of history, God's history, God's story, God's truth. Second, and this is the last one, um, not just historical archaeological, but the B, this is, and this is just kind of a, a, just a general sense 
um, that the Bible provides a uh, convincing and, if you will, true-to-life explanation of our world. That is, you look at the Bible, how it describes things, the origin of things, the makeup of things, uh, the nature of things, and we look at the world around us, our own hearts, our experience, you realize it makes sense. It, it just makes sense. Uh, like, like human uniqueness. And I, you could have a whole list of, of, of things that we see and experience that, that are, 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 can be well understood and explained by the Scripture. But human uniqueness, like why, why are we so similar but dissimilar from animals? Like we have some of the same biological functions and features and so forth, but why is there such a huge gap between animals and us? And there is a huge gap. The way we create, the way we write music and poetry. I mean, yes, a bird can sing, but a bird doesn't create a violin and sing while it's playing, right? Creating orchestras and symphonies and writings and, 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 and literature and, and, and building skyscrapers and sending men to the moon and back. I mean, there's no ape that's ever pretended to do that. There's, just, there's this huge gap of just the ability to abstract think. Like, how do you reason that we skipped all of that in some kind of evolutionary framework? It just, to me, doesn't make sense. We skipped from dumb and buffoon to highly intellectual and reasoning and ability to do things that no other creature can do. Why is that? Well, the scripture says, you know, we are unique. That we were created after the likeness of God with the capacities that are God-like to create and to think and to form and to shape and to write and to speak and to communicate in complex and highly um, wonderful and beautiful ways. It's like we were... That makes sense to me. Now, at the same time, we also recognize that we're enormously broken, like... As majestic as we are, created after the likeness of God, we are almost equally as dangerous because of how wonderfully we were created. So that the, one of the major enemies of, of, of creation isn't a lamb or an aardvark, it's, it's humans because we have the capacity to destroy. And that then, how do, how, do, how do we explain that? How do we explain that there's not a single person, human, perfect human anywhere? I, mean, I just for once like to meet somebody who is 100%, 24-7, unselfish. I haven't found anybody yet. I'm certainly not that person. Couldn't there be one? It's like, no. So how do we explain the universal corruptedness of, of humanity? The well, Bible has a pretty reasonable answer for that. Well, it, it's in here. It's, and that's what Jesus came to save us from, both the, the guilt of and the presence of and, and the consequences of. Uh, or... What else did I say? Psychology of sin. I mean, there's some deep psychology in the Bible that is, that is, that is revealed. Like, I was meditating on James 1 the other day where it's like, talks about where sin comes from. It's like, when the heart is, is, is deceived or led away or tempted, and then a desire, this inward drive then moves forward to produce an act of sin, which then produces death. And you realize there's this, like, it, 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 it informs us that the, that the inner part of, of, of our human sinfulness lies deep within the will that compels us to do things that are often irrational and unreasonable. It's like, that's, that's, that's so true. It explains a lot. 
Several weeks ago, I found out a really close friend of mine, a Christian buddy who served as a pastor who I went to college with, a very conservative college. He left his wife and he left his three kids for another man half his age. And his kids are devastated and his wife is devastated. And he has ruined his reputation. He's turned his back on all his friends. Why in the world, what rational reason would there be for my friend to turn his back on everything for the sake of a man half his age? There is no reasonable explanation for it because he was driven by an inward desire that defies rationality. And the Bible explains that. Or a need for love. We write love songs. Most of the songs on the radio are about love, how we need love, how we need to give love. But everybody knows that, that our love is jacked up, which is why, you know, divorce is such a big deal and marriages are hard. And, you know, it's like we all want love, but every human relationship is hard. We want it. Why is it so central? Because, because God is love. He designed us to love. That's the central core of who we were created to be is loved by God and loved um, loving him and loving each other. And, and only in that sense is there a sense of fullness and completion uh, when God is at the center and, and when his love is shed abroad in our hearts. And, and you, you, there, there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why it's so jacked up. And it's, again, because of sin. And it can only be set right when we receive God's love come in the form of Jesus Christ. And it can make sense. So much sense of who I am, who you are, who we are. That is, it really is true to life. So here are some reasons, internal, external. They're not ironclad. They're not bulletproof. They're not airtight. But this book, written over 15 centuries by 40 different authors in three different continents, that tells a very, very unique story that humbles man and exalts God, um, one that's, that fulfills and prophesies um, predictions, and one that, that stands the test of history and, and archaeological scrutiny and, and uh, things that are uncovered and dug up, and it makes, it makes sense of life. Given all that, what, you know, again, this is Christian, unchristian, whatever, do, do, do you, do we, do we believe this? Do we believe that this is, in fact, um, breathed out by God and therefore is the highest word over every creed and constitution and every claim? Do we really believe it? This is for, uh, listen, you and I both know there's a whole lot of pressure on us to bend, to conform to culture against what this clearly teaches. And the question is, and it's a crucial, pivotal question, what do I believe? Do I believe the collective consensus of pop culture regarding sexual ethics? Do I believe what's being passed or what has come down from on high regarding marriage? Or, and I know this is trudging into some territory here, but what does the voice say? What, what, what does the word of God supreme ruling over all say? That I will humbly submit to and believe because his voice is, is higher than any other voice. What do I believe about who I am? who I used to be, who I am now in Christ. Um, what do I believe about the future? Is there really a resurrection worth living for and worth giving up other things to have? I just what voice do we actually, when it comes right down, rubber meets the road, what do we believe, especially younger generation? Who I've met a lot. They, they like the Bible. Yeah, I like the Bible. 
But yeah, I really, this part and that part, uh, I don't really buy that anymore. It kind of seems a little old-fashioned, um, out of date. Nobody practices that anymore. Just Listen, it's not enough just to like the Bible, parts of it. If it is God's word, it is God's word. And that, that means following implications are, then, 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 it, then we, we let it master us, and, and we, we, we believe it, and we trust it to be true, even if we can't fully work everything out. And if we believe it to be true, then we embrace it, and we meditate upon it. And at the end of the day, we submit our hearts and trust to it, knowing this is his word, and he loves us, and he wouldn't command us to do anything that is not for our own good. This critical question, what do we believe about this book, because it's, it's more than just an issue of authority. It's an issue of, it's an issue of um, spiritual energy and renewal. I mean, what does it say? Um, the word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. It is a fountain of, of, of transformation. It gives hope to those who are grieving. It gives hope to those who are lamenting because it tells us that there's a resurrection to come and that there's forgiveness in Christ Jesus and that we're loved and we're his, that he has loved us with an everlasting love and that's in here and I'm believing that's true. Not the voice of Oprah, no offense. I don't say that as a joke, but there's a lot of voices people listen to, and some of them are better than others, but there's one voice that has to remain supreme, and it has to be the voice of God in Scripture, and I pray to the Lord that we as a church and we as individuals will make this the foundation stone of our life. Lord, you're good, and I just ask that you take this treasure, this gift that we have, and you would allow the roots of our faith to go deeper and deeper. And if there, have, if there are those in, in this church family right now that have found themselves pulling away from it, maybe drifting from a commitment to it as your word, I, I pray that this morning you would use what's just been expressed to tighten down the bolts and rivet our faith into the very words of Scripture, which are your words to us, O oh God, and, um, and that we would not allow ourselves to drift on the, the, um, the wavering winds of our culture. Allow us to, to be firmly rooted in the scripture um, that points us ultimately to Jesus and to life to come. So thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray your blessing over your people in Christ's name. Amen.